Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. 1 Corinthians 3, 11-17 For other foundation can no man lay than that is that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it. But it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? And so Paul here describes every person as a temple. And their life consists of temple building. We're being built, or we're building together on the singular foundation of Christ. This is a very different way of talking about the temple. Because for the Jews, this referred to the building. But they certainly understood this building was a metaphor. It's a kind of microcosmos. In Isaiah 66, 1, the Lord indicates, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? Here God indicates that the man-made temple cannot be considered the true temple, but is representative. It is only a micro-scale representation of the cosmic temple that is described in many places, such as Psalm 78, verse 69, And he built his sanctuary like high palaces, like the earth which he hath established forever. Within the temple, you know, are represented the oceans, the stars, the Garden of Eden. And then the priest, representing Yahweh, would emerge from the Holy of Holies into the holy place, representing God come into the world. God come to be with his people. And so the Jews saw the temple as the sign and center of God's presence in the world with Israel, with Israel sort of as a mediating, playing a mediating role, so that the temple and kingdom worked together or were pointing toward this cosmic or universal or all-inclusive salvation. And so if we asked after the meaning of salvation and how it is accomplished in the New Testament, It's not so much that we're saved from something as it is creation's completion or being made whole through Christ. Here is the fulfillment of Israel. Here is the fulfillment of Israel's scripture. And here is the completion of creation. As Paul depicts it, the individual is part of the universal dwelling of the Spirit. The Spirit, the Spirit of God, 
has come to dwell in human beings. The Spirit is poured out upon all people, as the picture in Joel fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. And so the universality of the gospel is represented in these two key figures in the New Testament, the temple and the kingdom of God. The cosmic cathedral of God's kingdom is being established through Christ. And as depicted here, this temple is at once individual. It's within you, but it's also corporate, being poured out upon the world. This is, gets at the beginning of the book of John. It's really John who changes up this picture of the temple and the kingdom. At the beginning of John, Jesus disrupts the Passover sacrifice and enters into the temple and he says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And of course we know he's talking about himself, that he is the true temple. And God then is systematically throughout history preparing the cosmic temple as a place of fellowship between humanity and deity. Jesus depicts himself as the fulfillment of this preparation. He's establishing a new kingdom centered on the temple of his body, but through his body to every body as depicted here in 1 Corinthians. For as Jesus will put it, the kingdom of God cometh not with observation, you know, lo, it's here or lo, it's there, but behold, the kingdom of God is within you. God no longer dwells metaphorically in a building or in a kingdom such as Israel. God dwells in his people, with his people. Temple and kingdom are now associated with the person of Christ and through Christ to each individual. And so in John there is this radical change of notion about the temple. John is written at the end of the first century, we believe in the 80s or 90s, and the temple and Jerusalem have already been destroyed. And so it's in that context I think we need to see Jesus as temple replacement as a depiction of how all the rights and meanings of Israel are now continuing as a kind of first order reality. That is, we don't have to go up to Jerusalem to worship, that each man can worship where he is. Each of us has access to the temple of God, to the Holy of Holies through Christ. This ingathering, you know, the ingathering of a new Israel is the way John depicts it. In the picture of the 12 apostles representing the 12 tribes. And this has to do with a new dwelling place. A new kind of sacrifice. Not a symbolic sacrifice of animals. But the sacrifice of each of us. That is that it's Christ's sacrifice. But we each take up the cross and follow Christ. So there's a new understanding of atonement. A new understanding of the kingdom of God. This theme of fulfilling Israel scriptures. You know, this is there at the beginning of John, John 1 1. He talks about the tabernacle, that God is now tabernacling with man. But among us, he has commenced in his flesh, that here is the word, and the word has put on flesh. And we have seen his glory, 
The glory was normally attached to the Holy of Holies in the temple. Now it's attached to the incarnation of Christ. In the beginning was the Word, echoing Genesis 1.1. But this creation is different. The Word was with God. The Word was God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything that was made. That is, here is the Creator come to earth. Here is the Creator incarnate. Creation continues in Christ. The picture is new creation has commenced in Christ. And then in John chapter 1, we have seven days, you know, that seem to symbolize the seven days of creation. And then Jesus comes to the temple. And the language then has a kind of cosmic symbolism, the language of tabernacle, you know, God dwelling with men, the language of glory. This has to do with God's presence. It was connected to the Ark of the Covenant that was in the temple, but now Christ then is the Ark in a sense, the true Ark. And so rather than reading this opening as simply a cleansing of the temple, I don't think Jesus is really concerned about Herod's temple. But the meaning is symbolic in the context of John. This must be read as the beginning of a new temple and a new order of worship and a recentering of the world on Christ. It says the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem to the temple. That is, Jesus here at the beginning of John is proclaiming the sort of new temple order that Paul is describing. And the theme of Jesus as temple, this actually marks each key moment in Jesus' explanation of who he is. You know, in the conversation with the woman at the well in Samaria, Jesus alludes to himself as the temple, the true temple. And this temple was often pictured as situated above the wellspring the waters of creation. He says, out of me flows living water. The temple in Jewish tradition was thought to be the, the place that the waters flow. We see that in Ezekiel. Jesus is now, he calls himself the living water. So too, we could go through each of the major scenes in John occur at the temple and identify Jesus with the temple at the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus describes himself in terms of this festival, once again, both in terms of the light of the world and thirst-quenching water. During the Feast of Dedication, this was actually a celebration of the re-consecration of the temple in 165 BC, but Jesus takes that word of consecration and says, I am the consecrated one. And during the final discourse, Jesus speaks of his father's house with many rooms, many dwellings, which indicates an ongoing extension of the household of God. And so in the course of the gospel, the temple has been identified, you know, first as a building, but now whose true form is the person of Jesus. And this then is extended to a new temple community. I think we can think of Liberty Christian Church as a little temple community, but also each of the members as temples of God. Here's the new kingdom.
but ultimately a new world order. And of course the key part of temple construction gets way at the cross and at the tomb in which the echoes of the temple reverberate. John makes it obvious that the cross is the point when the Passover lamb is being sacrificed in the temple, Jesus is being sacrificed. Here is the true lamb. Here is the lamb, as John the Baptist says, who takes away the sin of the world. At the very moment the Passover lambs are being slain, Jesus is this Passover lamb. And the work of the temple represented a kind of cosmic removal of death. I think we sometimes misunderstand what the sacrifices in the original temple were about. They were a cleansing of death. And it is a work completed in Christ. And this is the sign of the empty tomb. The resurrection, which most clearly echoes Jesus as temple. When the women go to the tomb, Mary saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. Many commentators see here an allusion to the Ark of the Covenant with its two angels at the head and at the feet. The mercy seat or lid on the Ark of the Covenant. In the tomb of Christ we've now entered into the Holy of Holies. And so besides the obvious implications that here God and his people meet, here true revelation is given and divine access is open through Christ. You know, the tomb and the ark, the lamb and the cross. There is no negotiation with the powers, with evil, with death, or with the necessity of violence. You know, great violence is unleashed on Christ. This isn't something that he negotiates. He simply defeats it. He overcomes it. He's raised from the dead. The true high priest has applied his own blood to the mercy seat so that where death previously occupied the center of the world and those who control the power of death control the kingdoms of the world. But now Christ has defeated these kingdoms in that he has defeated the power of death. And so he is the true king, the true prince, and is establishing a new kingdom, not built upon death and violence, but built upon his resurrection, that is, death is displaced. Death, or the devil, they don't demand a ransom from Jesus. He simply defeats them. He's lifted up. And the prince of this world has been cast out. John 12, 30. We find the life of Christ in the place of death. And the love of Christ in the place of violence. Christ's life puts paid to the notion that violence and war are inevitable. And that even God, you know, is pictured as kind of having to struggle with the powers, with the laws of the universe. This inevitable violence and death dealing struggle, I think this just simply describes the human order apart from God. Every institution, every nation, every means which cannot imagine a resource that transcends the violence of the world serves the powers of this world, the prince of the power of the air. This is precisely why Christ is the sole foundation 
of a new peaceable kingdom. The center of the world has become the throne room of heaven. This is John's vision in Revelation. Then I saw a lamb looking as if he had been slain, standing at the center of the throne. Revelation 5.6 All peoples and all of heaven are now centered on this reality. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Here, the world is brought into relation with its creator and redeemer through the true temple and the true kingdom. And so the temple is central, but along with this, the kingdom of God. This is why Jesus, you know, he teaches us to pray this way. Thy kingdom come is the unceasing prayer which Jesus passed on to the church. Jesus commanded his disciples, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Not seek ye first the kingdom of Rome. Not seek ye first the kingdom of America. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. And all these things shall be added unto you. This is the main opposition between the Jewish understanding of the messianic kingdom and the gospels. For the former, the Jews, Israel, the kingdom of God, is accomplished with or over people through Israel not within them. The good news is, as Jesus announces it, the kingdom of God is at hand. The word was made flesh. The kingdom of heaven, out of love for mankind, has appeared on earth and lived with men. As Jesus says, the kingdom is within you. And so the turning of the human heart to God in all of the pagan world, in the Old Testament, in Israel, None of this establishes the kingdom of God. Human effort will not establish God's kingdom. Only Christ establishes God's kingdom. And either we join that kingdom or we continue to dwell with the kingdoms of the world. So God remained distant and inaccessible, I'm afraid, through the kingdoms of this world. He's always pictured as high and terrible and distant. And one could enter into a relation only through fear. You know, the Old Testament, as the writer of Hebrews 10.1 puts it, these are simply the shadow of good things to come, but not the very form of these things. In Hebrews, the picture is, no, the good things have come. The kingdom of God is established. The old way, the law, leaves untouched the veil over the human heart. And this is only removed by Christ. This is what Paul is saying in Corinthians. The Old Testament law gave no satisfaction. Hebrews 7, 19, it made nothing perfect. But Christ makes all things perfect, all things new. Galatians 2, 11, by the law, no man is justified. When we turn from Christ, we turn back to the law. The laws of this world. You know, the laws of the Old Testament, the laws that rule this world. Paul pictures that from the beginning, people have been made slaves under the law. We are freed from that system. He says the law, the Old Testament law, was for a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. 
even the sacrifices offered daily had only a significance as a remembrance of sins, Hebrews 10. But they could not make perfect those offering them. This cast a deep shadow on the soul, I believe, of the Jewish people. And as a response to this dissatisfaction were born their kind of religious fantasies of the arrival of the messianic kingdom by observance, as if they could usher in the kingdom. And of course, that's not simply the Jewish mistake, that's the human mistake. To imagine that we can usher in the kingdom of God through human power. This was spiritual illness that we see in Israel, but I think it's the human illness. Every utopian revolution which equates the kingdom of God with a particular nation, a particular tribe, a particular state, has the Jewish sickness. Nature abhors a vacuum and it fills itself with the phantasms through which you get a kind of perverted vision of God's kingdom. But neither the pagan nor the Old Testament world reached or could establish the kingdom of God. But then there rang out the words of the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand and it is within you. The kingdom of God is at hand because in Christ God and man are completely united. And what was accomplished in him is effective for the entire human race. The kingdom of God is the incarnation in process and continuing in the church. That in the kingdom of God, we have the bringing together of two natures in Christ, the divine and the human. But this is also a picture of the temple of God. In each of us, the divine and human dwell together. First Corinthians, where we begin. On this cornerstone, which is Christ, each one builds his edifice from his own material. Gold, silver, clay, wood, straw. We are building the kingdom of God, and we need to be careful with what materials we build. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.